0: Thank you, Brittany and Evie, for that. Um, It's always an incredible blessing to be able to uh, see a young person the age of Evelyn um, sing a song like that and mean all of it. Um, Just incredible. Um, And she's my niece, so that's also cool. Um, this morning before we get going in too deep, um, it's possible I might just kind of lose my voice or it's going to be going in and out. Um, I've been doing that since Friday, so just bear with me if you would, um, which I'm sure my wife would gladly accept my voice being gone for a day or two. Um, but our text this morning is James chapter 3, a very familiar passage to some of you, um, covering pretty centrally the topic of the tongue. Um, before we um, before we get into everything, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you once again that we have the um, ability to, to enter into your presence and to be able to open up your word and to study it and to learn from it and to be able to encourage one another with it. Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity to um, just to, to be your church, to be able to come together together with a body of believers, singing songs of praise to you, recognizing you for who you are and all of your glory, being able to so gladly sing about the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, um, especially in this Christmas season. God, I pray that as we uh, look at this study of the tongue this morning, that we would truly understand the impact that our words can have, that we would really understand both the blessing um, and the potential destruction that our tongue has the ability to cause. And Father, I pray that Now, this morning we would enter a time of self reflection, allowing ourselves to be honest um, and to be able to see clearly the way that the tongue is um, intended to be used. Father, I just pray that you would um, enter into this place this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, James chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 12. Um, We're just going to read through the whole text here. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Starting in verse 1 says, My brethren, be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, withsoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the very course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, And hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Again, for many of us, this is a very uh, familiar passage and conversations about the tongue, but I think it is an incredibly essential uh, topic that we should always come back to. Um, A lot of the language there tells us how unruly the tongue can be. Um, Let's just simply, before we get too deep into this. Think about this past week. Think about the words that we have spoken. Think about the things that we have said to one another, about one another, maybe even about ourselves. Has it all been positive? Has it all been something that has been glorifying to God? Or have there been times where it has been that unruly evil, that it has been destructive, that it has been a fire? James is offering a very uh, thorough and very clear conversation talking about the tongue here. Um, keep in mind that, that James has a Jewish background. He's writing to those with a Jewish background. And we see this consistent conversation coming back to the tongue. Um, and we see when Jesus is speaking, um, he talks about how, how out, of the tongue, or out of the flow of the heart um, is what we so we're, that we're going to be speaking from the heart. And when I looked at this, I'm kind of, you know, in the study I'm reading through this and I was trying to figure out why is it that James in each and every chapter of this book that he keeps coming back to the tongue. Why doesn't he talk about the heart? Why is it that he's not focusing in on the heart? He keeps saying tongue. He keeps talking about mouth. And you continue to remember the words that Jesus spoke concerning the tongue. And as I studied this, um, you start to learn that the Hebrews focused very much on the actual guilty member, um, where when we read in the Scripture talking about if your hand um, offends you to cut it off, um as if the hand itself is evil. We know that that's something that is produced from the heart. When we talk about feet swift to shed blood, it gives this idea that the feet are actual culprits in a murder, or that the feet are something to be evil. But again, it's all stemming from the heart. We, we read about eyes of adultery, as if the eyes are inherently evil, but it's from the heart and the way that we use those eyes. And so, with this Jewish background, again, he's, he's focusing on each individual member, as if they are the guilty party, but we know that everything is stemming back from the heart. Um, I wasn't always great in my science classes, um, but in, you know, physically, and as far as anatomy goes, the tongue is not directly connected to the heart, correct? Is there any doctor in here? Okay, I think I, got, I can get that far, right? That's like middle school stuff. But spiritually speaking, from the heart, enters up into the mouth, and it comes out, Correct. We know this is when, um, when I was younger, and any time that I was ever to say anything mean, or if I were to use a curse word or anything like that, and you and your parents, you know, just want to slap you, and your response is, "Oh no, that just slipped out." The response was, "Well, then you've been practicing, right?" And that I didn't always have a rebuttal for that, which might be a shock to some of you. But again, the tongue is the organ that we have, by which the heart is expressing itself. We can truly know a person's heart by the way that they speak. We may not always know their heart, but we definitely know their tongue from their speech. Um, it's estimated that a man speaks over 25,000 words each day. That is a lot of words. Some of us, a lot more words than others. Um, for women, the number is over 30,000 words each day. Now, before you guys are laughing, thinking I'm going to get myself in trouble here, um, you know, I like to think that it's simply because the woman has to correct the man constantly. <laughs> At least in my experience, right? Um, that's, that's kind of the way it is in our house. I say something dumb, and she tries to fix me up. Um, but that's why I married her, right? Um, this equates to a 54-page book each day by each person. Um, a 54-page book. Of speech each day which also comes out to 66 800 page books in one year can we imagine that 66 800 page books of speech in one year for the average person this isn't someone like me who doesn't ever stop talking okay this is the average that is an incredible amount of speech and before we make the thorough examination of the text, just keep in mind, if we, if we speak so frequently, I think we spend one-fifth of our life talking. My question is, what is it that we are doing with that speech? When we just briefly read through this text, we see that there can be both blessing and cursing. If we were to weigh that 20% of our time, what percentage would be blessing? What percent would be cursing? In Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam coming forth with the sin of the tongue. Um, Right at the fall, you see his address to God, and it's, The woman that you gave me, slandering God as if he had something to do with the sin, blaming God, basically saying, I would never have done anything wrong if you hadn't given me that woman. We see this incredible lack of control over the tongue. Isaiah understands this in the midst of his vision of seeing God's holiness. He expressed himself saying, I am a man with a dirty mouth. Because Isaiah understood that sinfulness tends to show up most commonly with our words, from our mouth, from our speech. It's very representative of depravity. In Psalm 64, uh, we, we can see the tongue being an arrow. We're going to continue to see this idea of it being destructive and the things that it can do, but, but rabbis would, would qualify the tongue as something of an arrow because you didn't have to be in close proximity to harm another person with the tongue. Far different than a knife where you'd have to be close, but an arrow because you could kill a man from far away and he may not even have to see you. It's an incredible thought, isn't it, that our words, though they may not be face-to-face, can still have an incredible effect. Think about times that you may have been harmed by somebody and you weren't necessarily even in the same building, the same state, same country. Our words and the tongue is like an arrow. So James is giving this this extensive discussion, and again he mentions um, and gives conversation about the tongue in each and every chapter of his book. And he, we're going to see that he's concerned for his people. And much like Paul, he's encouraging spiritual maturity. His goal is to present mature believers to God. We look at Paul and we, we see him as this great evangelist. But what Paul also did so well was discipling those whom who came to salvation. He writes that his goal was to present mature believers to God. It wasn't simply... To, allow, to get them to attain salvation, to give them the gospel. And when they received it, he just departed from them and never spoke to them again. He was so passionate about presenting a mature believer. We see that the tongue is a tattletale, which reveals the heart. Think about this idea of being able to tame the tongue and how it represents the spiritual maturity. Think of a child. Okay, My son is three and a half. He has zero idea how to control his tongue right now. Anything that he wants to say, whether good or bad, or just gibberish, because he's been doing that recently. I don't know if your kids just started saying gibberish randomly and thought it was funny, but that's what he does. He has zero control over his tongue. He thinks of something, whatever it may be, and however ridiculous, and he just says it. He has zero thought for it. Then you continue to get older, and you're able to continue... Um, as, that, as you mature and you're able to control the tongue a little bit more. Um, but we see this discussion, and again, if he's going to mention it in each and every chapter, I think it's important. James is writing about controlling the tongue, and in verse 1, he opens up, My brethren, be not many masters or teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. He starts off this discussion with a, a brief introduction of saying, Hey, w- not all should be teachers. And this isn't just because, um, you know, and whatever the, the different theological arguments could be for here, but strictly within this verse, understanding that the power of the tongue can receive greater condemnation. Your words have an effect on your judgment. Think about this. If those who teach, okay, as this moment right now, teaching the larger audience, right, think about the effect that a teacher has in a classroom, Those who have an audience have responsibility. And he says that those who teach shall receive the greater condemnation. Be careful of what it is that you say. This is why each and every time Pastor Ben allows me to preach, I have a terrible week leading up to it. Because I truly understand the severity of what it is that I'm going to be teaching. I understand these are not my own thoughts. I'm not nearly clever or smart enough to give you any great original ideas. But understanding the weight of what it means to preach the Word of God and understanding the severity that God will judge that with is an incredibly painstaking thing for me. It's, it's a heavy weight. And um, in one of my classes for, for school, reading about um, Spurgeon all the time, doing a report on Spurgeon, and when you read some of the things that he's written, you just realize the incredible weight he was always under in preaching. How the physical toll that it took on him, giving 13, 14, 15 messages in one week. Sometimes four or five in a day. And how incredibly exhausting it was for him. Not only because of the physical energy, but the spiritual and emotional toll that it took on him. There's a caution for teachers, because at the heart of the teaching ministry is words. Some of you remember the great teachers that you had understanding the words that they said, whether it was in teaching or simply in mentoring you, Some, a word of encouragement that they said. Then we can also look at the other side, can't we? A teacher who was harsh in their speech to you. Continuing past the idea of a teacher, let's look at parents. Again, the first line of defense in teaching. Parents have an incredible opportunity to either encourage or bless their children or to curse them and bring them down and to tear them down and be this consuming fire. An unreliable tongue can be destructive. And this is why James is so passionate at the beginning of saying, look, because of this destruction that the tongue can cause, not everyone should teach. And those of you who are teaching are undertaking a very serious position. An incredibly serious position. And in verse 2, so that we don't get this idea that James is a teacher and he must have figured everything out, in verse 2, for in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Verse 2, he says, oh, by the way, I still haven't been able to tame the tongue yet either. And just as James can say as he writes this, I can also say I have yet to learn how to tame my tongue. It doesn't happen. No man is able to. If a man says that he can tame his tongue, then he is a perfect man man. And and we know that there's no such thing as a, a perfect man outside of Christ. And James, the author of this being the half-brother of Jesus, I wonder if um, if he's reflecting back on some of the words that he may have said, as he was very, um, very much against the ministry of Jesus at the time. He was not always the greatest supporter of Jesus while he was here on earth. So, Was he reflecting back upon these words? And we know that Jesus, after he was resurrected, that he appeared to James. Um, In 1 Corinthians 15, he gives the list, um, appearing to the twelve and appearing to the the people and all of this. And then you see this little side note of, and he appeared to James also. An incredible thing, just on a side note, to have the resurrected Christ appearing to you. Can you imagine what that would have been like? knowing everything that had happened, knowing that you had been critical of his ministry, knowing that he is a half-brother and all of these things, and you are now face-to-face with the resurrected Christ. James understands that out of the heart the mouth speaks. James understands the sinfulness of man and is saying, If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and also able to bridle the whole body, saying, If you can tame the tongue, you have completely tamed every part of you. If you can control the tongue, you can control everything else. Now this involves, uh, it's a twofold uh, manner of, of to bridle the tongue or to control the tongue. This is controlling the tongue in gracious speech, where, where someone may say something to you or an event may take place and you're gracious in your speech and you don't lash out in anger. But this is also um, the second part, which is the hardest thing for me, is to restrain the tongue in silence. Knowing when to be silent. That's an incredible gift, isn't it? Um, some of you, I already know, have that gift of knowing how to remain silent and when to be quiet and when to just sit and to listen. And in conversation, you're not um, sitting silent, just waiting for your chance to speak, but you are truly intent on listening to the person. That is an incredible gift gift, an incredible act of discipline, an incredible show of maturity to restrain the tongue in silence. Flip back to chapter 1 of James, verses 22 to 25 and 26. It says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, He is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And verse 26, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Verse 26 stands out, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. If a professing believer is unable in all circumstances to control their tongue, then their religion is worthless. God continuously calls us To control our tongue. We see James giving this extensive conversation about it. But again, it is clear that no man has been able to control the tongue. Verses 3 through 5, we see this disproportional power of the tongue. In verse 3, "...behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body." Behold, also the ships, which though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. I love illustrations. I'm a simple-minded person. If I didn't understand the first two verses, i truly understand these next few. Those of you who Um, who who ride horses, I know some of you um, love horses and are good with that. This picture of putting the bit in the the mouth of a horse. Um, The first time I ever rode a horse, I was nine years old. I was far smaller than I was now, right? Still the same, still really thin, but I was just like four feet tall. Tiny individual on this massive horse, yet still able to control it because of that bit in the mouth. There's absolutely no reason I should have been able to control a horse. But I love that illustration, and again, these are, the people at this time, as James is writing this, he very much understood the power of these Roman military horses. Incredible, incredible horses. Understanding that something so small could control the entire horse. Have this idea of the rudder of a ship. And again, before we say that there's there weren't, Uh, larger ships back then. In Acts 27, uh, we see that the ship that took Paul across the Mediterranean to Rome held about 270-ish people. It's a decent-sized ship. It may not be an aircraft carrier, but it's a large ship still. And yet something so small can direct every movement. Think about how large our tongue is in proportion to the rest of our body. Again, James tells you it's a very small member, but it controls the whole body. The tongue controls the entire body. And at the end of verse 5, Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. Here in Colorado and um, over in Tennessee, as of late we understand this idea of how big forest fires can be. We understand the severity of it. This is why we tell our, our children, uh, I don't know if they still have Smokey the Bear commercials. They did when I was young. Um, but if it's too hot to touch, you got to put it out. Because something so small with one or two little flames, can start an incredible fire. Now think about gossip. How quickly does that spread from, well, I just told one person, to somehow now the whole church knows, and everyone's talking about it, and we're putting it in the newspaper. An incredible thing that this tongue, which is so small for each and every one of us, has such an incredible effect on everybody. How it controls the entire body. Verses 6 through 8, we see the destruction that the tongue can have. It says that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. That is incredibly strong language there, talking about this tongue. Incredibly strong Everything about fire says destroy, consume. Fire doesn't play favorites necessarily. It just seeks to destroy everything in its path. And in the same way, words can do that. At the close of verse 6, set on fire of hell, um, the reference here is to um, what was formerly the valley of, of Hinnom, which, and that then became Gehenna. And Pastor Ben's studies of 2 Kings, I'm not sure where they're at, but they're probably getting to a point um, where later on King Josiah stops this, but this was a location, Gehenna was a location by Canaanite and Israelite worshipers where they would sacrifice children as offerings to the pagan god Molech. Now, keep this in mind as he's writing about this, okay? He's very familiar with this. This is a common practice of child sacrifice. Really, really bad stuff, right? A place of child sacrifice. To a pagan god. King Josiah in 2 Kings, I think, uh, chapter 17, I don't remember. But he stopped this practice and then he deemed it unfit for any decent usage. Said, basically, we want nothing to do with it. It can't be used for anything because that place had been so defiled by the idea of child sacrifice that he couldn't do anything with it. And it became basically a garbage dump where they were consistently burning trash, burning um, dead bodies, burning everything. So keep in mind this idea that when he's talking about the tongue being a fire or world of iniquity and all of these things that defiles the whole body tells us where this idea is stemming from that it's set on fire of hell relating back to this Gehenna constant fire in this place a dump unfit for decent usage constantly raging with fire so as he relates to this, you can clearly see that this he's very passionate about where he views this destruction of the tongue. He understands where it is that it comes from. And you wonder, is this where Jesus' body would have gone if not for Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and this plan that they had come up with? And I won't go too far into that, but just think about the idea that we commonly are relating hell and Gehenna in this place of constant um, non-stop burning and fire and, and all of these things and how Jesus' body did not end up there. In the big picture, just the incredible sovereignty of God over everything and even all these small and seemingly insignificant details. So James is writing about the tongue is a world of iniquity. It defiles or stains the whole body. It's an unruly evil. Also, a deadly poison. I think we all understand the effects that words can have, particularly those which seek to tear down or to destroy someone. Again, reflect upon the time that you had received words that would be deemed as a deadly poison. What effect did that have on you? He's clearly writing this with an understanding that I'm sure James had been criticized at some point. I'm sure that James had heard negative things talked about him. And I'm sure that he himself has also said these things. Because again, no man has tamed the tongue. None of us are exempt. And as you reflect on this, and it was an interesting time of reflection for me that as I thought about this and the idea that, yes, I still have to tame my tongue. Yes, I still have to continue to be able to do so, reflecting upon times that there may have been gossip about somebody, whether it was earlier on in life, and in middle school or in high school, which is kind of like the hot spot of all the gossip. You know, being a basketball coach or with high school kids all the time, and you just continue to hear that just nonstop. It's incredible. Um, and the church is often criticized as being another place where it's a hot spot for gossip, where, well, all the people do in the church is just gossip, and they just talk about each other, and they they talk about everybody else, and they're never saying anything positive. And it breaks my heart to hear those criticisms, because especially for for unbelievers to look at the church and say, wow, they, they talk bad about each other in times that I may have said something um, that would be considered gossip or demeaning or belittling to someone that may have been another believer, and this week, something that, truly reflecting upon it, broke my heart because that is still a child of God whom Christ died for. And I had never truly considered it in that way, so as I reflected upon this, you look at that and say, yes, this person may not be perfect, they may have flaws, they may have this situation may be true whatever, but that is still a child of God. But how destructive can the tongue be? Churches can be split and be destroyed simply off of gossip. Pastors have left because of gossip or rumors. Imagine in such a small valley. Some of you have witnessed this. Everything around here gets passed around extremely quickly. I figured that out like in my first year. I didn't realize this. But around here, if anything happens close by, everyone knows about it immediately, don't they? Now, in a way, that's good, because good things should be able to spread quickly, but what tends to happen? Good things stay quiet, the bad things, everybody know. The tongue is destructive. Verses 9 through 12, to close, we see this inconsistency of the tongue. It says, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Again, with the same tongue. Maybe in the morning we're, we're reading in the Word and we're praising God and we're, we're blessing God and we're saying all of these things and we're truly praising Him, but then later we're, we're cursing other men. We're, we're gossiping. We're talking poorly about one another. With the very same tongue we do both of those things. That to me is incredible. The same tongue that we do these things, it's incredibly inconsistent. Verse 10, Out of the same mouth, perceives blessing and cursing, My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Look at the example of Peter. Just last week, we Pastor Ben was going um, through Luke and we see Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Boldly proclaiming that when he asks Who is it that the people say that I am? The disciples gave some answers, and then Peter jumps right in when Jesus says, Who is it that you believe I am? And he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. An incredibly bold proclamation, an incredible moment for Peter. We see that in Matthew 16, but then ten chapters later in chapter 26, we see him three times denying even knowing Jesus. The very same tongue which proclaimed him to be Christ was then saying in three different occasions, I do not know that man. Now Peter often gets used as an example of um, quick to speak, right? For many of us, we're very quick to speak and slower to listen. And those of you that have already seemed to have mastered that are an incredible encouragement to me personally and to others. The ability to sit there restraining the tongue, to be able to listen and to simply offer The right advice at the right time is an incredible sign of maturity. And those of you that have learned and have been able to discipline yourself and to be able to grow and be sanctified to that level of maturity, I beg you to please help those who are younger to do that. Imagine what could happen with younger people actively seeking to control their tongue. Just imagine what that could be. Verses 11 and 12, there's three illustrations with obvious answers. Does a fountain send forth both sweet and salt water? Can a fig tree bear olive berries, either a vine, figs? Obviously, he doesn't go into some big discussion because we know that these things cannot be. You cannot have both fresh and salt water. saying our words should not be both of blessing and cursing. Understanding this idea of the inconsistency of the tongue. Taming our tongue is a mark of spiritual maturity, the continued sanctification of a believer, the attempts to control their tongue. As I was reading through one of these, the articles that Spurgeon had written, he was um, very concerned with a lot of the, the speech and the conversation back in the late 19th century with a lot of things that were happening within um, the Baptist Church over in London. And he was writing to them, trying to bring about correction and trying to bring them basically back to the gospel, bring them back to Scripture. They were allowing culture to interpret the way that they viewed God as opposed to simply looking at Scripture and basing their view of God off of that. So much to the point that some were doubting uh, the resurrection and saying that there's no punishment for sin. So even in their speech, again, this is where we draw back to the beginning of James. Not all should be teachers for those who teach Received the greater condemnation, and I was I was discouraged as you continue to read about this through church history and see the way that things have gone, and then you see certain men stepping out and being these pillars to call them back. But in amidst this time where they deviated from from Scripture, Spurgeon wrote, "A new religion has been initiated, which is no more Christianity than chalk is cheese." And this religion, being destitute of moral honesty, palms itself off as the old faith with slight improvements, and on this plea usurps pulpits which were erected for gospel preaching. The atonement is scouted, the inspiration of scripture is derided, the Holy Spirit is degraded to an influence, the punishment of sin is turned into fiction, and the resurrection into a myth. This was written in the late 1800s, but could be incredibly accurate as if it were written just this morning. We have pulpits which preach that the resurrection may not have actually happened. That there is no punishment for sin. That in the end, everyone gets into heaven. That there is no punishment for your sin. That you can always find a way to make it up. That God is so loving that there cannot be any form of judgment. We read that scripture isn't to be taken um, as anything that is true, but just good life lessons, good moral lessons for us to know. And that it can be, the meaning of it can change with any fleeting moment. And that it's it's the, the duty of the reader to determine the message. The atonement for sins is scouted. Say that there was one, that there was no need for the atonement of sins. And two, if there was a need, that Jesus couldn't have done that. Think about these things. These are things which are being preached pretty much through every generation. Removing the atonement, removing the Holy Spirit as anything but merely an influence, not something that's actively involved in the life of a believer. Sanctifying them, continuing to illuminate them. That there is no punishment for sin, that there was no resurrection. And these were things which were being spoken about from a pulpit at this time. And Spurgeon is writing, saying that these things cannot be so. And James makes it incredibly clear how important our speech is. That if we preach those things which are inaccurate, if we preach that there is no punishment for sin, what are the effects of that? If we don't preach the resurrection, what is the effect of that? If we preach that there was no atonement, what is the effect of that? It was incredibly convicting to see this and to understand that each and every word that is spoken, whether a teacher or not, is incredibly important. Again, one-fifth of your life you are speaking. You are using words. What is it that we are doing with those words? Are we simply Complaining and tearing other people down? Or are we reaching out, speaking about the atonement, speaking about scriptures, talking about the Holy Spirit? James makes clear that the tongue can give both blessing and cursing. No man has been able to tame the tongue, but it's something that we are to continually be looking after. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. God, I thank you that we're able to look at your word and that we're able to see the incredible power of the tongue. Father, we.